Hello, good evening. Good to see you all. It's like to kind of look around the room and look into everybody's little Zoom eyes. Thanks for coming out on this lovely, warm summer evening. I was just thinking how much I love this time of year, the abundance of light. It makes me feel really good. So I hope you're enjoying it too. Well, um, I used to be the regular Tuesday evening doan, uh, I mean doshi, uh, when the we, well, we're open again, but before the pandemic started. And um, the regular chant that we always did was trust in mind. Uh, and uh, now I think they've moved that to Monday night. Uh, that's the one that begins the great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. When longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. And it goes on. And I remember almost every Tuesday, we'd, we'd finish the service and we'd go out, we'd stand on the porch and we'd bow and somebody would say, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Having no preferences, boy, that sounds pretty hard. So, um, you know, to, to actually consider what, what would that be like to live without picking and choosing? What, what it would be like to just um, be present and satisfied with each moment, with ourselves, just as we are. So this is, um, this is the invitation of this poem written by Seng Chan. Uh, one of our, our third Chinese ancestor in Zen. And um, he offers very, very clear instructions. In fact, he offers 34 different pairs of ways that we formulate opposites in our minds. And he just tries to name all these different ways that if we could just release that tendency, um, the great way is not difficult when we do that and everything becomes clear and undisguised. So I want to talk about this because I personally find this to be a very, very difficult practice. And yet I love this poem. I love this poem. I think it is, it is simple, it is direct, and it is radical. It is a radical practice to take this on. Not always, not saying 24 hours a day, not saying that, of course, sometimes we don't have preferences, but now and then perhaps we might consider trying on this practice and see what happens. See what life is like. See what it's like to live this way. So before um, going into talking about this uh, poem, and uh, I want to just say that I am using uh, for my study the book uh, that was uh, has the commentary by Mu Song. And those of you that know me know that I'm always promoting Mu Song's translations and commentary. He has them for the Diamond Sutra, the Heart Sutra, Trust in Mind. I think he's a, a magnificent uh, contemporary teacher uh, who makes uh, the Buddha way very, very accessible while also really being very scholarly and honoring the, the tradition. And so um, before talking about the poem, I wanna say a little bit about this ancestor 
about Seng Chan, the author of this poem, because I think that it really helps to give some context for exactly how radical this teaching is and the nature of what he's inviting us to do. So um, a couple of points about Seng Chan, the person and the world that he lived in before actually diving into uh, dipping our toes into, into this text. So um, Mu Song refers to him as a Taoist poet. When uh, he was writing, there was actually a lot of, in fact, he, he calls uh, the, the activity that was going on in China at the time, he, the subtitle of this book is The Rebellion of Chinese Zen. And this was when, um, you know, Buddhism existed in China before it became Zen. It was when Bodhidharma came to China from India. He brought this way that we practice today that came to be called Zen. But before that, there was Buddhism in China, but it was much more of uh, uh, something that was practiced in the, um, the uh, imperial courts. And it was a little bit more the elites of society that were practicing. And so the radical thing that Bodhidharma brought to Chinese Zen was um, from India was meditation. And, you know, we, we remember that famous story of when Bodhidharma came and Emperor Wu, who was a devoted Buddhist practitioner who had built temples and who had amassed great um, accolades from society about what a devoted Buddhist he was. And this bearded, red-haired barbarian came from India and showed up in his court. And, you know, the famous story, um, you know, Emperor Wu said, well, you know, what, what merit do I have because of all these accomplishments that I've made as a great Buddhist ruler? And, you know, Bodhidharma said, no merit. And, you know, the emperor was, it was, was uh, shocked and was offended. And, well, who, who are you? You know, and Bodhidharma said, I don't know. You know, so this was, this is our way. The Bodhidharma is bringing our way. So that was radical uh, to come into China at that time. But then the thing that China contributed to Indian Buddhism was the Taoist way, was nature-based and metaphor rather than the uh, Indian Buddhism, which was more abstract and discursive. So here's this meeting of the rivers. You know, here's the practice of, 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 of just sitting and meditation and not knowing coming into a country and then meeting the nature-loving um, Taoist, and that is actually what gave birth to Zen, Chan in Chinese, Zen in Japanese. So Seng Chan was part of that movement. And in fact, this articulation uh, here that, that he wrote um, was, um, was one of the forms of the new language that the Chinese Chan uh, movement was articulating. Neither the high court Emperor Wu style of the existing Chinese Buddhism and not the more abstract um, version of an, an intellectual of the Indian Buddhism, but a unique arising in the third century or so in China that is our tradition and that is this uh, monk's tradition. So 
the um, this is a quote from from Mu Song. He says the language of Seng Chan's poem is the first evidence that we have of the creation of a new style of language in Chinese Buddhism that departs from the Baroque flowery language of the Indian sutras and is very influenced by Taoist sentiments, very down to earth and nature based. So in this, in this poem, the trust in mind, he is really, really helping us see that um, reality is not something, it's a network of causal happenings and is constantly changing. And what we really need to pay attention to is our distorted perspective. That's where our liberation comes from. Not in memorization and not in fancy sutras and scriptures, but in really paying attention to the distorted perception that we have. And that's what this poem is about. The distorted perception that we have when we're constantly dividing everything into opposites, picking and choosing, holding preferences. So that's one thing that I think is very interesting to know about the person who wrote this poem. And the other is that he was a leper. And um, he experienced a lot of discrimination, as you can imagine, because he was in a body that the people had a lot of opinions about. There was a lot of preferences that the social norms have against, you know, people who have, have leprosy, who have different uh, who have different ways of being in, in, in our bodies. So um, not only was he a leper, but at that time, when uh, after he got uh, transmission from his teacher, Hueke, he had to go into hiding because there was actually um, then the beginning of a governmental drive to um, exterminate Buddhism. So Seng Chan, the leper, after he got his transmission, he lived 10 years homeless in the mountains, practicing by himself. This is the person who writes this book. This is the person who's inviting us to liberate ourselves from the oppression of picking and choosing and holding opinions. I feel like knowing this is really important because in our more privileged society and our privileged lives, it could be very easy to just think, oh, that's too hard. I would like my picking and choosing. I like my preferences. And I invite us to consider the, the, the life of the person who wrote this, who really, really felt deeply the pain, the pain when there is picking and choosing and holding of preferences, the pain in his own body and in his own life. So, um, you know, this undercuts this, this feeling that sometimes we have in Western culture where Buddhism is some kind of elite practice and you have to have money and be able to go to retreat centers and you know you have to have the luxury to take time off work these ancestors were, were not privileged and were not having to you know go to fancy retreat centers and take time off work they were in their bodies in their lives and that that that, that is the ground of the teaching that this that this that this work comes from so his insights about liberation um, are coming through his own flesh and blood it's a very difficult life. And his, his, his practice with his teacher, Hueke, uh, was, um, it's interesting to just take one more little side detour here in terms of his life before listening to his words. 
So he he came to his teacher and and said um, to him, my body is infected, master, with leprosy, and I beg you to please cleanse me of my wrongdoing. You know, there was probably that view in the culture, as there is sometimes now that, you know, if you have some illness or some sickness, like somehow you did something wrong, you know, that's the vast misunderstanding of karma. Oh, you must have done something wrong in your past life. You know, that's why you've got this problem. So he's coming to Hueca with that understanding. And Hueca says, well, bring me your wrongdoing and I will cleanse it. Maybe this sounds familiar. This is a this is a formula that happens sometimes with Zen teachers and students. Bring me your wrongdoing and I will cleanse it for you. So he looks, Seng Chan looks and looks and looks and looks and he comes back and he says, I am looking and looking for my wrongdoing, master, but I cannot find it. And Hueka says, you see, I have cleansed you of your wrongdoing. Now you must rely on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It's like, and then Seng Chan said, well, what do you mean? What does that mean? And Hueka said, mind is Buddha. Mind is Dharma. They are not two. The treasure of community is the same. And Seng Chan said, today for the first time, I know that the nature of wrongdoing is neither inside nor outside nor in between. And Hueka says, you are my treasure. I will now call you the jewel of the community. So this is the person who is telling us the great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. When longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes pure and undisguised. This is the person who is writing these words. So um, I just find that to be extremely moving. And uh, with no further ado, let's, let's, let's consider his, his teaching. The great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. So what do we mean by the great way? I mean, what is the great way? Well, in, in the Zen tradition, uh, you know, we talk about practice and certainly that might refer to training and Zendo time, but essentially what we, what we, the bigger understanding of practice is that it's something that we're doing every moment of our lives. And we may train in a Zendo or in a monastery or with a teacher or through study, but our practice our practice is happening through every through our body and our speech and our mind with every encounter that we have with every being with every breath that we take mindfulness they call it sometimes um, in all moments of living so um, our the great way is that experience of living um, fully awake fully aware uh, body, speech, and mind, fully embodied. It's, it's not some abstract um, thing that we're trying to attain. So the great way, this way of, of practicing, of being present with every moment, is actually, it's not difficult when we can let go of having preferences. Now, like I said before, your mind right now maybe is going, but I can't do that. I can't do that. I have to have preferences. Of course you do. 
We all do. <laughs> it's fine. It's good. No problem to have preferences. On the other hand, can you think of examples in your own life when having preferences contributed to your suffering? So I'm not saying we don't ever have them. Let's set that worry aside. You can still have them. But let's also consider, are there times when having preferences create suffering? And I'm just wondering if anybody has a, an example. It's okay if you don't, but I just wanted to see if you did. I have a simple one, a mundane one, and I have a heavy duty big one. So anything either or anything in between. Any anytime you noticed that your holding on to a preference for something actually was creating more suffering for you. And if you have an example, you could show your hand. Okay, I guess either everybody's shot. Oh, I got two hands. Okay, just took a little time. Let's go Sally and then Barbara. Sally, if you want to unmute and then we'll, we'll take one from Barbara. Um, I, I just started thinking about walks in the woods with my family and the complaining that goes on with the two boys that I have. And, you know, me just trying to control it, thinking that I can somehow control all this arguing or, oh, the walk's too long. And I, I was making myself miserable doing that. Yeah. So you, what, what was your mind state or how is it that you then allowed yourself to release yourself of the burden of preferences? I do. Like who cares what they say? <laughs> um, no, I just endured my suffering. It's not like I was enjoying myself. Got it. So you you noticed the suffering. You yeah. noticed the suffering of that. Mm -hmm. Like it would be much nicer if they weren't complaining. Yeah. I mean, I've had strategies before, which is to, just to um, appreciate. Because within all of that, there's something to appreciate. Good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that example. How about you, Barbara? When my son turned 30, I put on a big party for him. I went to a lot of trouble. I planned things very carefully. We held the party at his drum teacher's house. I don't know how it happened that my friend Martha was with me, but her daughter came along too. And I remember being so upset that her daughter was coming to my son's party because she didn't know him. And I didn't want her to be there. I have since awakened from this entire, I just wanna tell you, six years ago when I needed a place to live, a woman reached out to me. She was 90 years old and she had a home decorated, not in my Zen preference. And she was 90 and she was a Republican. And she offered me space in her home. 
had I paid attention to my preferences, I would have missed having what ended up being for five years a very, very nice living situation. Thank you. Those, those are two, two, three, all really great examples. Um, I, I thought the simple mundane one that I thought about, and, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it is, you know, I grew up on the Monterey Bay and fog has been a part of my life ever since I was a little baby. And I continue to live on the Monterey Bay and fog is part of our life. And every single morning when I wake up and it's foggy, I go, dang, I wish it was sunny. And I'm so happy when the sun breaks through. And then sometimes when we have the weeks where the sun doesn't break through, I get really cranky. Even though I've lived my entire life with fog. And I know that fog is why we have redwood trees. And that fog is why people from the valley drive over to Santa Cruz and are so grateful to be here in what they call our natural air conditioning. Here I am with my little small mind because I prefer the sun being cranky about the fog. So that's a, the, that's a simple, a simple example. But then there's also very, um, very uh, terrible examples of what we do to each other in society because of this tendency to have our preferences and to uh, pick and choose the kind of people that we think are worthy and the kind of people that are unworthy. Um, and so it's also really important to recognize the, the, the severity of this tendency that we have to, to pick and choose. Many, many years ago when I was studying with Catherine um, and I asked her, what should I study? She said, study your divided mind. Really study it. Really become intimate with it. And when she said that, I actually didn't know what she was talking about, but I did. I was a good student and I did, and I studied my divided mind and it really helped kind of form a basis for my entire life view to really understand and see the, um, the cost to our uh, well-being, the cost to our aliveness, the cost to our happiness when we um, are so wedded to our, our views that we, um, we become addicted to them. And in fact, Musang translates, uh, the great way is not difficult for those who, who are not addicted to preferences. And that's a way I think that he as a modern teacher makes the distinction that he's not talking about across the board, you know, that you shouldn't have preferences. But, but the problem is that when they're not just kind of neutral, but they become something that we then defend at the cost of our deeper experience. And um, that might be a way that can be helpful to look at. Is this, you know, is this preference really something that I'm so attached to that I just can't let go of? So the suggestion here is to, um, to, to let that go. And in the next sentence, he says, when longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. So what he does throughout this poem, this turning 34 times of all these different ways of considering this divided mind. So first he talked about picking and choosing. Now he's talking about longing and aversion. Oh, I want it to be this way. Oh, I don't want it to be that way. 
That sometimes is also translated as likes and dislikes, uh, or even sometimes it's translated as love and hate. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But the problem with living trapped into this like-dislike modality is that we get trapped in a world of reactivity. Uh, we're pulled this way and that by depending on what we like and what we don't like. And that's, that's the difficulty of this. That's the suffering of this is because we're no longer free. We're, we're reactive. We're, we're, um, we're um, not able to experience life as it is. Uh, it becomes conditioned. And yet what Seng Chan is inviting us to do is that if we can let go of this conditioned reactivity, then each moment is what Musang calls its own new perceptual unit. And we can act freely and appropriately. Oh, this moment, not this moment connected to all those other moments and all that baggage and all those presumptions, but this moment. Now I'm free to act more appropriately with this moment, with this being, with me as I am now, not the me that I thought I was or that I think I am. And it, it takes time to chip away at this edifice. It takes time and, and it's, it's quite radical because so much of our society is built around creating these identities and having preferences uh, you know, the whole marketplace of, uh, of advertisement is based upon, um, you know, um, activating and aggravating our sense of picking and choosing and preferences and longing and aversion. So to actually um, be attempting to um, live so that each moment is its own new perceptual unit, we have to chip away at this big construct that we create and that gets created for us in life. However, it's possible. And then um, we actually begin to have access to the great Brahmavihara of Upeksha or equanimity. You know, that's that's what the, the four Brahmaviharas, you know, metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and um, upeksha or equanimity. Equanimity is living without picking and choosing. It's living without uh, longing and aversion, but just being present with what is moving with what's happening. In upeksha, I often think about it's it's like being a, a rooted a, a, a rooted tree, and it's not that you're not in the weather. No, you feel those storms. You, we feel the emotion of life. We, we do feel the, the longings and the pulls and we move, but we're also grounded. We're also rooted. That, that's Upeksha. And that's the opportunity of um, what he says here when he says, when, when longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Just read a little bit of, of what he says here. Um, we begin to chip away at the edifice of construct making. By cleansing the lens of perception, 
to see how this cycle of longing, clinging, and becoming is working in our life to cause dukkha, suffering. This is a long, painful process, and it is not likely to happen overnight, but its effect is to gradually build up a sense of equanimity, upeksha, that provides a counterweight to the reactivity of likes and dislikes. In these moments when dislikes and dislikes have been truly replaced by equanimity, everything becomes clear and undisguised, revealed to be empty of own being. From this perspective, we are aware of the space between, that is a little wordy here, the primary point of direct apprehension. You know, I'm not even going to read it. It's too out there. But basically, we become aware of our freedom to not appropriate experiences, to not try to fit them into our conditioned matrix of likes and dislikes, to not make a story out of it. I want to just read those words one more time. I think they're so helpful. We become aware of our freedom to not appropriate our experience, to not fit it into our conditioned matrix of likes and dislikes, to not make a story out of it. He does, um, let's see, 706. Oh, do I want to launch into this or not? There's always this question of whether to stop or whether to do one more little part. I want to just do one, Ziggy's laughing, and, and you're going like this. I'm going to do one more little part, and then, and then we can have some discussion if we want. So I just wanted to say this. Um, you know, there sometimes this is translated um, in, in this translation and in the one that we chant in the Zen Center, we say when longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. But there's many translations here. And sometimes it does say when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. So I just want to uh, make a little uh, preachy point here where I'm glad we don't use that translation because I think it's very misleading to say when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Because I, I don't see love as, well, you know, saying, uh, Mu Song says, if we're gonna use the terms love and hate, he says, we should think about it that at their core, both love and hate are basically neutral. And it's a matter of our, uh, per, you know, our perceptions and the stories that we make that turn this more neutral um, experience into projections that then we call love and hate. And I just wanna be on record with saying, I don't agree with that. And if that's heretical, well then here's another feather in my cap of heresy because I really feel like love is not a neutral thing that is a mere projection, but I think that it's the power of what is why we nurture our children. I think it is the um, that which moves us to care for one another. It is that which moves us to care for the earth. So I'm always going to be on the side of um, encouraging love and not trying to reduce it down into this, well, you know, it's just kind of neutral and it depends on what your projection is. So I, I just wanted to say that. That's my one more point. Um, and fortunately, uh, our translation doesn't go there because as Musong says, uh, the translations that do go into um, love and hate 
it kind of uh, gets us into what he says, uncharted waters, because we tend to so value love in our Western culture. And it's challenging and difficult for us to think about, wait a minute, when love and hate are absent, then everything's clear. So I'm, um, anyhow, I just, in, in case you ever run into that translation or someone who's promoting that view, uh, now you know what um, I think about that. And the last thing that I wanna say is, um, this is a point I didn't make, but I think it's really, really, really important is that um, in the next line then he says, if you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against. And, and the last one is the, 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 um, the setting up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. <laughs> So, well, I'll stop there. But again, I just want to say here, and this is something from Musang that I think is really important. He's not talking here about um, social reality. He's talking about our own personal experience of self. So I'm going to read what he says. A word of caution is in order here. The injunction for not holding an opinion for or against is about self-identity and self reification. It is not to marginalize the issue of personal and societal ethics. Buddhism is big on ethics. Uh, you know, Shila Paramita is the, the, the practice of ethical behavior and the 10 precepts, uh, prohibitory precepts and the pure precepts are all about ethical behavior. So the entire framework of the Buddhist teaching rests upon um, Sheila or um, personal ethics. And so this is not this, this statement of if you wish to see the truth, hold no opinion for or against. It doesn't mean, well, therefore I can just do whatever I want and, and be unethical and you know take, you know, stomp all over the earth and be disrespectful of people. What this is referring to is really looking at our self-identity and our self-reification or the ways that we could create these constructs of ourself. You know, that, that is the, um, that is what's being challenged here. So uh, again, that's why I really like this guy because he's, he's very, very contemporary and very um, aware of social and political uh, realities. The wisdom of not holding any opinions liberates us from constant self-referencing. But then there is a larger understanding about what's harmful to ourselves and others. And Seng Chan, like all Buddhist teachers, encourage us to live a non-harming life in the service of others. So to the extent that there is picking and choosing to engage in non-harming and wholesome activity, then we are engaged in some opinions and some picking and choosing. So I think it's so important to, to recognize that you know, these teachings are not absolute, um, there's always the absolute and the relative, and there's always this aspect of um, weighing and balancing so that we don't become fundamentalist in the teachings. But that said, you know, again, this, this poem is a drumbeat for the side of paying attention to the way that we create suffering with our picking and our choosing and our liking and our disliking and our longing and our aversion. And those are only three of the 34 opposites that he posits in this poem. So that's enough for now. Um, who knows, I might talk more about this next time I talk, but it's, uh, we chant it every Monday night. 
um, at the Zendo now and on Zoom. And um, it's also um, online on our in our Sutra book. And it's a wonderful, wonderful teaching. So I hope this has been a little bit of a taste and an inspiration for you in this practice. And we'll go ahead and close now. I'll chant the Bodhisattva vows. Feel free to uh, chant with me along at home. And then uh, Jean, you could make a few announcements if there are announcements to be made. And then those who wish to stay for 10 minutes or so and chat more, we can do that.